0: You've been enjoying the uh, Sabbath School Quarterly um, Bible Study Guide, Biblical Missionaries, haven't you? It's been, uh, it's been, a, it's been a great study but uh, let's be honest, it's been a bit challenging too, hasn't it? It's been a tad bit challenging and uh, we're going to delve right in and um, we're studying about Peter, Peter and the Gentiles. And so very intriguing. Let's look at a memory text here. It's from Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. This is from the New King James Version, which is the Bible I typically uh, teach from and preach from. It says, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That verse is extremely significant to today's lesson, what we're going to be looking at today, especially with regard to the Gentiles, those that are not of uh, our faith, you see. Human beings like to divide, group, and categorize people, which can lead us to viewing some as being inferior and some as being superior. While this attitude is pervasive in the world, exhibited in prejudice, exhibited in bigotry, in areas of race, class, status, gender and religion, has the church, and this is the question, these are the questions we're going to be tackling here this morning, has the church in some quarters succumbed to the same spirit, Uh, witnessed in lackluster efforts to share the gospel? among certain people. Did the early church struggle with prejudice? And if they did, how did they break down the walls of separation that came up between them and others? How did God get through to the Apostle Peter Uh, so he could be used to share the gospel with the Gentiles? Because after all, even after his conversion experience, he even struggled with a tad bit of uh, prejudice and bigotry himself question the bottom line question really is how can god get through to us if we find ourselves in the same position perhaps we might find ourselves in that position more readily than we uh, think we might be so let's begin with the first question and that is how or what or what do we know about peter who is peter We know Peter to be an apostle. Shortly after the baptism of Jesus, and you can read about this in John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42, uh, Andrew, which was Peter's brother, brought his brother Peter to Jesus. That's how Peter became acquainted with Jesus the Messiah. His brother Andrew uh, evangelized him and brought him to, uh, to Jesus. And essentially, that made Peter the first Christian convert. I don't know if you ever thought about that, uh, very interesting. Later, he became the first apostle to witness the Gospel to the Gentiles, but I'm getting ahead of myself here, we'll get on to that a little later. Peter responded to the call to accept Jesus as Messiah, and he associated with Him intermittently at the beginning. Now, nearly two years later, Jesus had uh, called His disciples to permanent discipleship. You remember reading there in Matthew chapter four and verse twelve, how he called them away from their occupation to be with him more permanently. They met with him, associated with him intermittently, but nearly two years after that time, uh, they uh, they walked with him and uh, more permanently. And uh, Peter, not only but also Andrew and their working partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Th- Thunder. Peter uh, appears first. In all four of the New Testament lists of the 12 disciples, when the the gospel writers list the 12 disciples, Peter's name is always mentioned first. And uh, and that's significant because Peter became uh, a strong leader for the early church. We know he often took upon himself the role of spokesman for the entire group. On behalf of the group, I declare you to be the Christ, the Son of God and peter was often known to take these leadership roles in, uh, in in a commentary it was said this it has been said this of peter his ardor his eagerness his earnestness his courage his loyalty his vigor and organizing ability no, no doubt worked or marked him rather for leadership among the disciples from the very beginning peter was preeminently a man of action his enthusiastic disposition was his strongest personal character trait. And then the commenta- commentator says he was a man of pronounced extremes, and his strong personality was the source of marked virtues and serious defects. Peter had some problems. He was impetuous, he was rash and uh, didn't fully understand the work of Jesus the Messiah. We know Peter was a fisherman, we know Peter was married. As a matter of fact, Peter's wife's mother got sick and Jesus came to her home, healed her. She got up, served the disciples and people flooded that house throughout that day to receive healing and teaching at the hand and at the mouth of Jesus. So that's what we know about Peter. However, even though he was impetuous and rash However, on that fateful evening when he denied Jesus three times with bitter shame, he looked into that face of compassion, into those disappointed eyes of Jesus and his life would never be the same again. Peter became a changed man. Peter was converted in the Fabulous book, Desire of Ages, great inspired commentary on the life of Jesus. <clears throat> Ellen White tells us, before his fall, Peter was always speaking unadvisedly. Any, you know anyone like that? From the impulse of the moment, he was always ready to correct. The lips are moving faster than the brain or at least uh, something like that. He was always ready to correct others, to express his mind before he had a clear comprehension of himself or what he had to say. But the converted Peter was very different. I'm reading, still reading. He retained his former fervor. I want you to notice, he was still enthusiastic, still vigorous, still fervent. He retained his former fervor, but the grace of Christ regulated his zeal. She goes on to say, he was no longer impetuous, he was no longer self-confident and self-exalted, but he was calm, self-possessed and teachable. You know, it's amazing what God's grace will do when it gets a hold of a person and uh, you can be sure that this didn't come easy for Peter, it wasn't like he woke up the next morning and he was just a completely different man, his heart had certainly changed, his motives and intentions had certainly changed because he'd he'd, he'd repented and encountered Jesus, you see, and then there were some things he had to learn but, uh, boy, he was more subdued, he was teachable, calm and self-possessed, we are told, that's page uh, 815 of Desire of Ages. Now, Peter was eventually given authority and that's different from supremacy. He was given authority from Christ to feed the flock of God. You remember the disciples after Jesus had risen from the dead, they went out back to their former occupation, they were fishing and uh, Jesus appeared on the, on the beach and, uh, and there was a miracle that was wrought and Peter recognized it was Jesus and jumped in and ran to Jesus, swam to Jesus, actually you can't run in the water, can you? But he swam to Jesus and there, Jesus, in front of His disciples, His friends, there were about six to eight of them, I can't remember exactly how many, but there were about six to eight of them there on that beach, eating uh, that, that cooked fish that Jesus had prepared for them. He looked at, looked at Peter and He asked Peter if He loved Him, three times. The amount of times Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And instead of saying, well, of course I do, you know I do, he was self-possessed, he was calm, he was teachable. And in humility he declared, I love you. And three times he responded that way to those three questions. And each time Jesus encouraged Peter to feed the flock of God, the lambs and the sheep, the young and the not so young. He became the first apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, some are going to say, well, you know, how about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, he was coming to Jerusalem to worship in the temple and it appears as though he he was of the Jewish persuasion. Essentially, Peter uh, became the first apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But what is a Gentile? What is a Gentile? A Gentile is technically a non-Jew. To the Jews, a Gentile was a non-Jew. From a Jewish perspective, the Gentiles were often seen as pagans who didn't know the true God. And during Jesus' time, many Jews had taken pride in their cultural and religious heritage that they considered Gentiles as being unclean, uh, dogs, and they were often referred to as the uncircumcised. Gentiles and the half-Gentile Samaritans were viewed as enemies to be shunned. And you can read about that in John chapter 4, 18 and Acts chapter 10, which we'll get to in just a moment. Now, Peter, uh, even though he was a leader and he did struggle with his bigotry from time to time, was eventually victorious but was eventually victorious over it, helped the early church along with the Apostle Paul, who emerged to be uh, the the main apostle to the Gentiles eventually, Uh, but Peter and Paul both helped the early church to understand the need, to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to all peoples, as well as guide the church through the issues that threaten to divide it. And we'll get to that in chapter 15. So that's Peter. Peter, from who he was to what he became in Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a lot we can learn about the conversion of Peter and his willingness to be used of God. One lesson stands out immediately. A changed person in the hand of God can be a powerful instrument, can be a powerful instrument in bringing others to Jesus Christ. And so if we are willing and we are uh, trusting in the Lord and He has our hearts and our minds, watch out, Sacramento. Watch out, wherever you're viewing from, when God gets a hold of us, great and marvelous and wonderful things happen. Let's go over to Sunday. Let's talk about Pentecost, because here, we're, we're what we're witnessing here in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, the transition... Uh, the life of Jesus, yes, and into the early days of the early church, we're noticing a transition in the, in the Jewish economy, how God is, is going to reach the world, you see. <clears throat> Sunday, Peter at Pentecost, we're in Acts chapter 2, so let's go over there, throughout his ministry, you remember Jesus had made it very clear that the gospel was to go to how many people? was to go to all people, that it wasn't to be kept merely to the Jews as was so commonly believed by the people in Israel. They prided themselves that the gospel was for them and them alone and you guys, you're not worthy, you don't deserve it and all of that. Jesus taught about that. John chapter 4, you remember his encounter? He talked about this with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman and he witnessed to the folk there. Matthew chapter 24 verse 14, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the Jews. No, in all the world. For witness to all nations and then the end will come. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you're in Acts chapter 2, just go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, what did Jesus say? He said, "When, uh, when go there, go to Jerusalem, tarry, wait for the promise of my Father, but you shall receive power, that word is dunamis in the Greek, which, which we get our English word dynamite from, God gave them true power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. He wasn't going to avoid his own people, and in Judea and Samaria, and then where? To the uttermost parts of the world, you see. And so Jesus taught that. In fact, in Jesus' teaching, in His teaching and His practice, uh, His teaching and His practice was predicted, or rather was predicated on the Old Testament Scriptures, which declared that the work of the Messiah was to bring light, the truth and light to the Gentiles. And you can read about that in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42. So what Jesus was doing was nothing new. God's desire was always for everyone to come to a knowledge of the gospel, the truth about God and the truth about His Son and the great sacrifice heaven made to win uh, mankind to, to, to them and to eternity, you see. So this was nothing new, yet Jesus had also made it evident that the disciples' first labors was to be among the Israelites. Did you see that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? You were to go where? Jerusalem and then where? Judea and then to the half-Jews, the Samaritans, and then where? The outermost parts of the world, you see. The disciples were to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and when the day of Pentecost had come, God used Peter to preach the gospel to the visiting Jews of the diaspora, thus paving the way for the gospel to go to about 15 nations. But uh, you remember, you remember the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples. They go out, they preach the gospel. This is the feast of Pentecost. Jews from all over the land have come to Jerusalem to celebrate in this, in this festivity. And so it's the perfect time for God to pour out His Spirit. And what does God do? He pours out His Spirit upon His, His people, those up in the upper room who'd come together, who'd pray together, who'd press together, who studied God's Word together, who confessed their faults. And uh, and God poured out His Spirit upon them, and they spoke in other tongues. The, the tongues referred to here in Acts chapter two are languages. Why did God give His disciples, His people, the gift of tongues? Was it so they could stand around and talk to each other in a foreign language and pat each other on the back and say, "Hey, you're converted. You've received the Holy Spirit." No. Who was there? Jews from the diaspora. From where? Other lands. And they came to the celebrations. Uh, There in Jerusalem, the, the presentations would have been given in Hebrew, they would have known Hebrew, but they didn't know Aramaic, which was the language of the disciples and those in that region. And so God equipped His disciples, His followers, with the gift of languages so that everyone who came heard what they were saying in their own native tongue, their own native language. It was a powerful miracle. What was the purpose of it? To spread the gospel, to spread the gospel, you see to take the gospel to those, about 15 nations are listed here in Acts chapter 2. And so God moved upon His disciples, you see. Uh, God gives gifts to His church, to you and to me for the proclamation of the gospel. We're talking about being missionaries uh, in our home and in our community, in our workplace, in in our society. And God gives us gifts so that we might be effective witnesses for Him. That's the reason for gifts, God gives gifts not as evidence of conversion, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's evidence of conversion. That's different from the gifts of the Spirit. God doesn't give the gifts as evidence of conversion, but that the work of God might go forward. That's why God gives His gifts. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 2, and let's read verses 22 to 24. Peter is preaching. God uses Peter in a powerful way. This is a different Peter than what you're reading about uh, in the Gospels this is a changed man. This man is, is, has come under the influence of the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. And notice he's preaching. Let's take a look at his sermon and what he says to those that have come and uh, who are listening. Notice, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, someone has Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. We've read it for a memory text, but I want someone to read it again. Who's got that? Acts 2, 38 and 39, all the way in the back here. Jan's got that. We're going to come to you in just a moment, Jan. So Peter, what is Peter preaching about here to those that have come, those that have come for this celebration? Peter preaches, preaches the certainty and the purpose of Christ's death and his resurrection. And what does he say there? He said it wasn't possible that he should be held in the clasp of death. It wasn't possible. Why wasn't it possible? Why, why did Peter say it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held in the grave? Well, number one, because of the sure word of prophecy. Because of the sure word of prophecy, he goes on in chapter uh, 2, verses 25 through 28 and quotes Scripture, where God declares that Jesus wouldn't see, uh, his body wouldn't see corruption in the grave, he'd be raised. And so based upon the word of God, Peter said it wasn't possible. Another reason, because Christ was sinless, couldn't stay in the grave, didn't deserve to be down there. And and thirdly, because Christ himself was the life giver. He can't hold the life giver down, he can't keep the, the life giver down. Can't keep him subject to death. And so the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. Notice, let's go on to verses 29 to 33, and then we're going to come over to Jan in just a second. It says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, that he himself say himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let's go on to verse 36. Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Talk about direct and aggressive evangelism. Peter told it like it was, didn't he? Told it like it was and it had an effect. Peter exalted Christ and uh, as the promised uh, Christ and Jesus as the promised Christ and the promised Lord. He exalted Christ to the position of Christ and Lord. And what happened? Folk were impressed. Their hearts were convicted and then uh, they asked, what are we going to do? And Jan has the answer. At least she's going to read the answer. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Hmm. Amen. Thank you. For Peter, Peter reveals the sinner's appropriate response to the conviction of sin. What are they? Two things. Repentance and what? Water baptism. That's exactly right. Repentance and baptism. And of note, it's important that we note the Holy Spirit is said to be available to how many? To all. Look at the last verse, as many as our Lord will call. How many is the Lord calling? To salvation. He's calling all. It's calling everybody to salvation, you see, including the Gentiles, meaning that the gospel was to go to all, no matter their creed, no matter their color, no matter their uh, religion, no matter their persuasion, no matter their gender. And we need to remember, too, without the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, any effort that we make toward leading people to Jesus is going to be fruitless. We need the Holy Spirit more than ever before. We live in such a diverse city and a diverse nation and uh, we all live with diversity, different people, and we need to know how to reach this mind and talk to that mind, and the Holy Spirit impressing those hearts, bringing to them conviction that they might be led to understand the truth about Jesus. The preaching wasn't just theological, it was theological, but it 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 was given and it was impressed upon the hearts by the Holy Spirit, and God used that message and many people responded. And the Bible says about 3,000 people were baptized and the Lord added to the, you read, continue in Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to the church daily such as would be saved. These are folk from all over, people responding to the, to the gospel, you see. So this was huge. The gospel, the Pentecost essentially paved the way for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. The Jews of the Diaspora were convicted, they repented, they were baptized, they joined the church... And then they went back home, and what do you think they did? They sat on it? No, they shared it. They shared the message that Peter shared. They shared about Jesus. They shared about what had happened in their lives. They gave their personal testimony. You can be sure of it. And people were impressed, and the way was paved for the gospel to go to the world. Let's go to Monday. Let's go to Monday. Let's talk about Peter and Cornelius. This is part one, and we'll do part two. We're in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, verse 1. Let's read this, Acts chapter 10 and verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called, that's up by the Mediterranean northwest of Jerusalem, Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. So this is an interesting story uh, about a Gentile uh, centurion who became a follower of the true God or follower of Jesus Christ. Cornelius was a Roman officer, the Bible says, he was a centurion, he was a leader, uh, the one that was over a hundred soldiers, and to be exact, he was in a, in a cohort, he was leading archers who were non-Roman citizens, these were freedmen, who were working for the Roman government, they were archers and they were in the military. Let's go on, verse 2. So this man was, was, uh, was important, this man was very important, and he was a pagan, but not entirely. Look at verse 2, a devout man, and who, uh, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. What was he? What did the Bible say? He was what? Devout. Devout. What else does it say? He was a man who feared God. What else did he do? He gave alms. He was a generous man, hospitable man. And thirdly, or fourthly, what else does it say about him? He what? Prayed to God continually. That's exactly right. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 133, it says, Believing in God as the creator of heaven and earth, Cornelius rever- revered him, God is the creator, acknowledging his authority and sought his counsel in all the affairs of life. He was faithful to Jehovah in his home life and in his official duties. He had erected the altar of God in his home, for he dared not attempt to carry out his plan or to bear his responsibilities without the help of God. That's why he was a praying man. That's why the Bible says he prayed to God continually. It's interesting. This man was a pagan, but he wasn't a pagan entirely. He was a worshiper of the true God, Uh, And yet, he didn't know it all. He was still, according to the Jews, a Gentile he, because he was uncircumcised. Now, this story of Cornelius addresses one of the most dis- divisive issues, decisive issues, rather facing the early church at that time. Can a Gentile become a Christian without first becoming a Jew? That's quite a process, isn't it? Nope, can't, can't give your life, life to Jesus. You've got to become a Jew first, get circumcised, men, and then you can become a Christian. That was the issue, that was the argument. Cornelius' conversion, along with his household, has often been termed the Gentile Pentecost. It was huge. His conversion was huge, so big in fact that Peter had to defend what had happened to, uh, to, to some Jewish converts uh, when they accused Peter of uh, boycotting standard Jewish practices. Go, Keep your finger there, go to Acts 11, let's look at verses 1 through 4, notice... Now, the apostles and the brethren were in Judea. They heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Who are they referring to? Cornelius and his family. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision did what? Contended with him. Now, you would think, you would think, praise God, these guys gave their life to Jesus. There was evidence of their conversion. The Holy Spirit came upon them, spoke in other tongues. No, they contended with Peter. Peter. Verse 2, verse 3, saying, you went, thank you, you went into un, to the uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter explained to them in order from the beginning. And then he goes on to explain uh, what happened, his vision and uh, Cornelius's encounter with the angel and so on. Let's jump down to verses 15 to 18. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Now, this is uh, what happened after Peter was sharing the gospel of Jesus. The Holy Spirit fell on them at, from a, a as at the beginning, when the Holy Spirit fell upon us. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall baptize uh, with the Holy Spirit. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became what? Silent. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance, to life. This was huge. Now, someone's got verses 3 to 6. We're going to have you read those for us of chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. Who's got that? Right over here. We're going to come to you in just a moment, sister. Now, this was so big. We have to just step back a little bit. The argument was, men, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to become a Jew before you become a Christian. Even Jewish converts were contending this They hadn't fully given up their traditions and their customs, their heritage. It was so rich and you can understand. Steeped hundreds of years. Yea, thousands. So it was tough for them to give it up. And yet, they understood when they heard the testimony of Peter. They understood. Let's let's continue reading. Acts chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. We're going to have our good sister read that. Thank you. He saw in a vision It's evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming in to him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodged with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou art to do. Don't you love this? Look at the lens to which God is going to get this man, Cornelius, who understands truth to a degree to bring him greater truth, to bring him the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great lens. He comes to him in in a vision, sends an angel with a message. And then, of course... Uh, vision comes to Peter. God's setting this whole uh, divine appointment up, the meeting between Peter and Cornelius and his household. It's incredible what God is doing. God saw in Cornelius a seeker for truth. He believed the prophecies. He was waiting for the Messiah to come, yet he didn't know that they had been fulfilled in the life, death, and in the resurrection of Jesus, you see. He desired to more fully understand the way of salvation. If you go to Acts 11, verse 14, just read that with me. Uh, Peter is talking, and he's telling the story, Uh, and he says, who will tell you words by which you and all the household will be saved? This is the story that Peter is telling about the the dream, the vision that Cornelius had, telling them to send your servants, tell them to tell Peter to come and see me. And why? Why should Peter come? So that all in your household will be what? Saved. That was what was on Cornelius' mind. He wanted to be saved. He wanted to understand the truth of salvation even more. And so what did God do? Well, good luck, Cornelius, all the best, and uh, I've done all that I can do. No, it goes to great measures to connect Cornelius to Peter and to the church, you see. Yet, Cornelius did have a part to play. He needed to send for Peter, didn't he? Truth acquired by personal effort is often valued and appreciated more than truth that's thrust upon us. And so, Cornelius had a part to play in, in understanding and receiving and, and, uh, and accepting truth. Now, here's a couple of questions for us. Can a person be a follower of God who does not have a correct understanding on all things? Yeah, the Bible says Cornelius, a devout man, God-fearing man. Does God judge a person based on the degree of knowledge they have of the truth or upon the use made of the truth that they have? Does God judge a person based on the truth that they have or the use made of the truth that they have? The use made of the truth that they have. That's exactly right. And what does this teach us, then, about how we interact with someone who does not believe like we do? Does this teach us? Is there room for harsh criticism? Or should we express disinterested love and compassion? Yeah, that's the way to go, isn't it, all the time? You know, sometimes, and you know, you know, sometimes, and I think some of us, we we get we get into this habit occasionally we get kind of fed up with certain perversions in society and the way certain people would dress and the, the tattoos and the, this and we complain and we and we forget we forget and we build up these barriers that's them this is us we go to the church we're holy people of god with a remnant that's them and we and this happens sometimes subconsciously build up these barriers and god wants those barriers torn down he wants us seeing people through the eyes of Jesus. These people, whatever they look like, wherever they're from, whatever their background, whatever they're going through, they're as much His children as you and I. The desire is all to be saved. All to be saved. We are, there is no room for harsh criticism. We should express disinterested love and compassion. Amen? Well, let's go to Tuesday. We're going to do part two of Cornelius' story. We're not done with it yet. we have going to move right along. Look with me at verse six in chapter 10. And now send to Joppa. Send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea, he will tell you what you must do. And um, it's interesting here that the angel didn't share the gospel with Cornelius, but instead he directs Cornelius to Peter, who will then end up doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of God. I love what, what uh, Ellen White says in Acts of the Apostles, page 134. Thus God gave evidence of his regard for the gospel ministry and for his organized church. See, when, when, when God was seeking to win Cornelius, he wasn't going to win him into a vacuum. He was going to win him to what? the church. To the church. So He connected him with who? Peter. It's the same with Philip and Queen Candace uh, of Ethiopia's treasurer. It was the same with Paul, Saul, and Ananias. God always is seeking to connect people who are learning the truth with His people who have the truth. That's how God operates. And so that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a big thing because when I uh, walk my walk and I do my thing during the week. That means I have to be aware that God is seeking to connect people out there with me and with you. He's seeking to connect them with you because uh, I can't reach them all. I'm certainly not going to even try to attempt to do that. And some people won't respond to my ministry, but they will respond to yours far better than mine. That means when we leave here, we're going to have to be more aware of how God's working and what God's doing in uh, other people's lives and be ready to be used by Him, you see, she goes on to say the angel was not commissioned to tell Cornelius the story of the cross. A man subject even as a centurion himself to human frailties and temptations was to be the one to tell him of the crucified and risen savior. So that's God's plan. He doesn't use angels, he uses you and me. Because we understand what it means to be tempted. We understand what it means to fall. We know what it means to get back up and look to Jesus and hold onto his hand. We're the best candidates for leading people to Jesus. The best. All right, there's so much we can look at here. Verses 24 to 26, we won't read them, but Peter responds, responded to the call of God to go to Caesarea. Cornelius was overwhelmed to meet Peter in so much that bow, he bowed in reverential worship. And uh, Peter was not put off by that, neither was he flattered. And he invited Cornelius to recognize him as a man like himself. Then in verses 27 to 29, Peter first explains to Cornelius and his household the Jewish custom that he can't mingle with Gentiles, and he emphasizes that he responded, though, without objection. Peter also acknowledges in those verses that he had been taught a valuable lesson, that he should call no man, what, verse 28? No man unclean, that's right. Now, in verses 35 to 43, Peter preaches Christ to the family preaches Christ to the family, preaches about his life, he preaches about his miracles, he preaches about his betrayal, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his work in heaven as man's representative and advocate. He shared with him the gospel, the full gospel, not just a part of it, he gave him everything. Peter presented Jesus as the sinner's only hope to Cornelius and his family, and they responded. And again, in verse 43, Peter again testifies to the truth that the gospel is to go to who? It's to go to everybody, it's to go to all. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, Jesus' name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. The gospel's got to go to everybody. Doesn't matter what they look like, where they've come from, what school they go to, what job they have, what political party they are affiliated with. And I've just got to stop and pause here for just a moment. You know, the climate's getting a little tense and a little hot. Republican debates. One just had a Democrat debate coming up and several others. And people are going to start taking sides. And we're going to look at people and view them through different lenses. Potentially. Because they think politically different than you and me. And we build up those barriers. There they go. And God wants those torn down. Keeping first things first it doesn't matter who's, a, who's elected, politician, Jesus is still king, amen. amen? I should say president of the United States, but God is king of the universe, amen, amen. Oh, so, we, so we're told, we're told here that no man is common or unclean. Uh, uh, in verse 34 and 35, I want you to jump back there, Peter opens his mouth, he says, in a truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The Seventh-day Adventist church primarily thought its mission field originally, was from the east coast to the west coast and in 1874 the first official uh, missionary, uh, John Nevin Andrews, was sent to Switzerland and he primarily worked, uh, in most of the cases, for Christians. It wasn't until the 1890s that the Adventist church began to send missionaries to foreign lands, people of other religions. And, uh, and so sometimes it takes us all a while to, to recognize and realize there's a, a great number of people to be reached and everybody is invited to receive Jesus and God wants to use you and I to be that vessel to lead them and to share with them Jesus. Whoever, uh, someone's got Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. We're going to come to you in just a moment. Revelation 22:17. 17. I want to read John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever... Believes in Him should not perish, but perish, but have everlasting life. Revelation twenty two verse seventeen. Thank you. And the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." And let him who hears say, "Come." And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Whoever, thank you very much. Again, it's whoever. The call is for how many people? Everybody. Everybody, even those that might not like you, and you may not like them. It's for everybody. God is seeking to tear down the walls of partition, you see. Now, in verses 44 to 48 of chapter 10, the Holy Spirit, they receive the message of, of Peter. Holy Spirit is poured out upon Cornelius and his household, and it's manifested in the gift of speaking in tongues or languages. Now, the purpose was to convince Peter's Jewish companions. He took six people with him because he was concerned that when he went back and he reported what happened, they wouldn't believe him. And, you know, what are you doing mingling with the, the, the Gentiles, Peter? So he took six witnesses with him. They couldn't believe their ears and their eyes. And so they, the speaking in tongues was really to convince his Jewish companions of Peter's vision and that the gospel was to go to everybody, including the Gentiles. Well, let's talk about Peter's vision, because this, this uh, vision that came to Peter impacted Peter in a huge way. What was the ev- th- This was the event, essentially, that changed Peter's attitude toward the Gentiles. You read there, it's, it's recorded in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 21, and it relates the story of a vision that God gave Peter. He was in Joppa, he was in S- uh, Simon's place, he was a tanner, and uh, we probably shouldn't brush over that or breeze by that quickly. It's a detail that helps us see that Peter wasn't entirely bigoted and prejudiced uh, because tanners were technically repulsive to the Jews because they handled dead bodies and the body wastes in the process of doing the tanning. However, Peter still needed some time to grow and was about to be given an opportunity to do so. So in verses 9 through 16, Peter saw in vision a great sheep descending from down to the earth, and it had on it multiple unclean creatures, creatures prohibited by God to ingest, to eat. He heard the voice, and you can read that in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, he heard the voice of Jesus commanding him to eat them, but Peter protested, seeking to be obedient to his heritage and to God's commands." So Jesus proceeded to tell Peter not to declare something God had cleansed, common, or unclean, and this happened how many times? Three times. Three times, indicating that it was a very important message. Peter, who, uh, who is known as Peter Bar-Jonah, Peter Bar-Jonah, Peter the son of Jonah. It's interesting, Peter and Jonah are very similar. We talked about Jonah a few weeks back. Both were called from where? Joppa both were called from Joppa, both are reluctant, both initially protest, Uh, both, or to convince them God intervened in supernatural ways, Uh, you know, Jonah was swallowed by the great fish, he was there for three days, three nights, God had to reveal the vision, or the, the dream, the vision to Peter, how many times? Three times, that's right. Both are told to get up and go, and in both cases, the Gentiles believed, and interestingly, in both cases, the conversion experience The conversion experience generated hostile uh, hostile reaction. Jonah, it was Jonah who who was the one that gave the hostile reaction. In this case, it was the Jewish converts that were hostile to what had happened there with Cornelius and his household. And then in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 10, God provided the answer to Peter's question concerning the vision because Peter didn't fully understand it. When Cornelius' servants showed up to take him to this God-fearing man, Peter realized that Jesus wasn't inviting him to eat unclean food at all but calling Peter to put away his prejudice. Don't call any man common or unclean. The lesson is clear. All people are acceptable to God. He loves us each equally, no matter our background or our present standing. Now, we have a question. Richard, do you have the question? Pastor Chris it's often asked, if Cornelius was already a God-fearing man, then why did Peter need to witness to him And wasn't there a risk that Cornelius would reject greater light, thus jeopardizing his position with God? And having said that, why do we need to witness to people of other faiths, is not God judging them by what they do with the light that they have received and not the amount of light? How would you address that? That's a good question. (laughs) That was a lot of questions. Yeah, that's a good question. Very good question. Well, first of all, who was the one that arranged the meeting between Cornelius and Peter? So if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for who? For you and for me. It's good enough for each one of us, you see. Second, have you ever been in a room and uh, had one window? And you knew there was a great view outside and you can't see it because there's that one window, you see. Um, How much can you see outside? Not much. When you open the door, you discover there's a whole lot more to appreciate. God is not content with people having a one-window experience with Him. He's not content, you see. And uh, His truth is not designed to curse people, it's designed to be a blessing. So why on earth would God's people withhold more truth, wonderful truth, truth that will set people free? Why would anyone withhold a blessing from people when they can discover more of God's truth? Lastly, the story highlights a very important point. While all people are acceptable to God, not all religions or faiths are. And all religions or faiths are, we need to remember that believing a lie is harmful, and the enemy of God and man can use that to lead a person to be lost eternally. Yet while the Christian faith is superior, and I'm going to say that just for someone's benefit, while the Christian faith is superior to other faiths, this doesn't make the followers of Jesus superior or better than anyone. A life of disinterested love for someone is more effective in winning someone to Jesus than merely arguing the truth. God doesn't see all religions the same. God doesn't see all Christian faiths the same. He's called a remnant that bears the truth to lead people to an understanding, full appreciation of His truth, not so that they can live a miserable life, so that they can be richly blessed, you see. So I hope that helps answer the question here. Well, time is running out. We're going to get to Thursday. We've got one minute to talk about uh, chapter 15 of Acts. The success of the mission of the Gentiles raised some very important questions for the early church regarding what Jewish requirements would be expected of Gentile converts. The main focus was circumcision of men as it represented compliance with all the Jewish requirements. Should male converts to be, be circumcised before they are welcomed into the church? That was an issue. Some Jewish converts thought it was imperative. And If you read Acts chapter 15 verse 1, they believed it was essential for what? Salvation they believed it was essential for salvation, the issue became significant enough for a conference to be held to resolve the matter so that it wouldn't be a distraction and hinder the church from its mission. So what happened at the Jerusalem Council that helped settle the important issue? Well, I'm going to give you four things that happened in about 20 seconds. Number one, Peter reminded the listeners, and I'm going to, you can read these when you go home, Acts 15 verses 7 through 9, Peter reminds the listeners of what he witnessed in Cornelius' household as, uh, as each of them, upon accepting the gospel, received the Holy Spirit, just as those in the upper room had received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember, their reception of the Holy Spirit came as, as, uh, from, an, from obeying a command that Jesus gave to tarry in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father and the outpouring of the Spirit, just as in the case of Cornelius's family. And it was a partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So it wasn't just a pragmatic solution that Peter was offering, but it was also a biblical solution. Number two, Peter goes on in verses verse 11, Peter reminds those gathered for the council that salvation is through Jesus alone, not by works, a teaching handed to them by Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. So again, the solution is what? Biblical. Thirdly, the council was given the opportunity to listen to the working among the Gentiles apart from Jewish traditional requirements, which gave evidence that the work of God was moving beyond the borders of Israel, just as God had desired long ago. And you read that in verse 12. So again, it was a testament of what was happening, but based upon what God desired from the Old Testament. Again, it was a biblical solution. And number four, Jesus reminds the listeners about what God had told His people in Old Testament times about calling the Gentiles to Himself. You read that in verses 13 to 21. Thus affirming Peter's testimony and that of Paul and Barnabas from the Word of God. God's servants essentially helped solve the problem there at the early church from the Bible. And it was confirmed by the testimony of the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Gentiles. And that's how problems are resolved, through the working of the Holy Spirit and through instruction and counsel from the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Well, there's a lot we could talk about. We've learned a lot from Peter's ministry just through this study and this week. And uh, we've got uh, got some work to do, don't we? We've got a world to win by the grace of God. And may we, and uh, this is the lesson that I take away, may we always view people through the eyes of Jesus. Seeing people, what they can become as transformed by the grace of God. Would you join me in viewing people that way? Would you would you ask God to help you see people with the lenses of Jesus? Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org